Welcome to Valley Talk. I'm your host, Heather Stark. You know, last week we did an interview with a researcher from the Washington Student Achievement Council, which is, I, I wasn't aware of this, but it actually is a state organization. It's a .gov, as they say. And they look into, as you can imagine, achievement for students. And so they just issued a report about what has happened with our students in the last year, the COVID year, the pandemic year. And they came up with several key findings. We're fortunate right now because I have guests, two guests, Dr. Anthony Smith and Dr. Randy Stocker, the superintendent and the uh, uh, assistant superintendent for teaching and learning of Riverview School District. So welcome, Anthony, and welcome uh, to Randy. Now, Randy, you're not on mic right now, so we'll catch you in a minute, but welcome. Uh, to the show. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Good. Well, thank you for making the time for this. You know, as we were talking off air, it's one thing to say, okay, here are numbers that we got from census reports, or here are numbers that we got from, you know, some other study about the state in general. And, excuse me, and the impact that COVID has had. It's another thing to say, here's what our students did. And so I'm hoping that you can give us that specific information about some of the points that the report uh, talked about. Now, one of the things that I found interesting about the report is that it, they didn't actually, the, the Washington Student Achievement Council didn't actually go out and do surveys or gather data. They just relied on other studies and census data, that kind of thing. So uh, it's kind of like one step removed on some of these numbers. But one of the key findings findings that they had. Well, you know what, let me back up a little bit. Anthony, do you, and we talked that I'm not being disrespectful. You gave me permission to call you Anthony. So, <laughs> you know, I have, I hearken back to my school days. Yes, Dr. Smith. Okay. Um, but um, had you heard of this report? Did they communicate this report with the school district before I contacted you about it? No, not in a comprehensive way. No. Oh. So they just kind of sent you a note saying we did a report. They have their website and I'm assuming this might've gone to uh, the associations across the state or maybe the educational service districts of which there's nine ESDs that cover the state territory. But uh, Dr. Stocker and I were not aware of the report. Okay, yeah, so it was kind of interesting. Um, I was kind of surprised that they didn't actually collect any data. That, that they just, you know, went through other reports. I mean, obviously that's that's legitimate and that's wonderful, but I always, maybe I'm prejudiced, but I always feel like if you're gathering the data and you have a little bit more handle on what you're getting and the accuracy of it, uh, do you feel that way? Do you think that- Yes, absolutely. And we're aware of this organization and they're consistent presenters at conferences. And, you know, that's another thing with COVID, the, the traditional ways of doing conferences and sharing information uh, it had to change a bit. So uh, we've noticed that with quite a few things. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody's struggling. I understand that. Although I think we should be getting more used to it now after more than a year, <laughs> you know, um, but that's, that's just my opinion. Well, let's just kind of dive in. Let's just talk in general about this last year at Riverview uh, School District. Wow. What, what, what turmoil? Uh, can you just kind of sum up, you know, in general, what Riverview School District has been going through uh, since a year ago? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's basically, you know, the old analogy of uh, building a plane while you're flying it. <laughs> and um, 
you know, you have your the accelerator down to the floorboard um, the whole time, and you're having to make adjustments on a daily basis. And if you're not doing that, you're probably not doing your best for kids. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I was really pleased about at the start was we basically did have a one-to-one -one relationship with personal devices for our students. And I think districts that had that and, and had relatively good connectivity for their students, you know, throughout their communities, uh, which is something I can talk about later in the interview, um, uh, benefited from that. And then uh, districts that didn't have that in place for whatever reason, sometimes it's philosophical, sometimes it has to do with cost um, and, and passing, uh, you know, uh, tech and capital project levies. And I just want to really give a shout out and appreciation both to our community uh, for uh, supporting those levies and then also for our tech department, our teaching and learning department, human resources, you know, all of our departments really working together uh, to make sure that students having a one-to-one -one relationship with technology, um, you know, as aligned with our curriculum uh, was a huge advantage for us. I can imagine. I, I think some of the districts that didn't have any kind of technology programs beforehand are the ones that I read about most in the newspaper and, and in the news about having difficulties. Um, and then that connectivity thing, too. I mean, that's huge. You know, you go out in some of the rural areas and you're just not going to get, you know, the connections that, that you should. And I know in some of our outlying areas, we're not getting it. Um, so do you want to come back to that or do you want to go ahead and talk about it now? Uh, sure, we could talk about it now. Dr. Dr. Stalker had some things to add, and I'm going to go ahead and let him also talk about how we chased down students that didn't have connectivity. Ah, okay, good question. Okay, and and you guys you guys are referring to each other as doctor and doctor, and now I'm popping up going, okay, so Randy, I I mean, it's making me uncomfortable. Okay, we're, we're just used to that in the workplace, but uh, we we really do prefer Anthony and Randy. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, well, Randy, what about this connectivity thing? I mean, uh, what, you know, how did that work? And, and then what uh, Anthony was saying about the tracking students down, what, what kind of things have you guys been going through in the last year? We started in the, the year prior when we, we realized that we were going to be out. So we started, you know, connecting kids with resources and we figured out which students had you know, connectivity through their Wi-Fi, who had hotspots, who didn't. And we were able to continue to narrow that down. I learned a lot about Wi-Fi coverage in the Valley. I learned a lot about hotspots, where they do and how they don't work. So how a hotspot works for a family with three students versus a family with one. So we had school teams at each of our schools. We had what we call a CARES team that were keeping track of the students that were engaged and who had connectivity. And that was our first slice. We just, the first goal was who was connected and who was not. And we worked with our information technology department, which is led by Chris Collins and his team. And so we continued to refine this down. We were driving around the valley with hotspots to determine whether or not we could get connectivity from the service providers. And in those areas that we couldn't, we started working with the schools to and transportation department Sabrina Warren's our transportation director is amazing. And we started to look at the safety requirements necessary to bring students into the school. So from the very beginning, we started to bring students in that didn't have connectivity, you know, at their homes. And so the goal was 
you know, how do we how do we connect kids? So the, at the very foundation is we're kids connected from that technology lens. We're fortunate in that the curriculum that we've been researching and providing and utilizing has a has an online component to it. Um, it just happened to be that it all came together this year. So we're pretty poised between the technology tools that we have, the devices here in the system, as well as the curriculum. And then we have teachers that, that were eager to learn and to, to figure out how to connect with kids. So it was kind of multi-pronged. There wasn't just, sometimes Heather, I think about shaking gravel, you know, you, you shake the gravel and you catch a certain, you catch so many kids, then you shake it again. And you catch so many kids, you, so many kids, and you just keep shaking the gravel until you get all your kids. Yeah. But, you know, it took us a little while to get there. But I did want to loop back, if I can. Um, yeah. You were asking what it was like in this past year. And I think a lot, It's it, it was a constant decision-making strategy. We would have a decision to be made, and there would be about five ideas that you could choose from. As soon as you made that decision, there were five more ideas to choose from. So the, the year has been this constant decision-making. And I think probably one of the, I don't know, probably one of the greatest things that happens are relationships with families. We built a family engagement time in at each level so that teachers and staff could, could reach families, students could call in for help. But we explicitly built into our day a time for teachers, especially at the elementary level, to reach out to families. We, we have a strong belief around it takes all of us to, to support this child for this child's learning. And then we explicitly made those teacher connections and built that right into our calendar. And so that I think we've had more contact with our families um, on a weekly basis or biweekly basis than we have in my years in education prior to that. Mm -hmm. So, so, so did I hear you correctly that at the beginning, we, when you were checking for connectivity, that the students who didn't have any connectivity, you brought them in? Is that what you said? We did. First, we tried to figure out if we could actually get hotspots in there or not. And then we started working with um, schools and they had, they had a list of students that weren't able to connect. And so then we worked with transportation. We built socially distant um, spaces within the schools and started to bring those students in. Wow. I, and, you know, I wish I'd known about that earlier because I, I just didn't know you were doing that, not having kids in the Riverview School District. Um, you know, my, my, my kids are past that age. <laughs> and, and, and yes, that is a sense of relief that you heard in my voice. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, the, uh, just listening to what's going on in other places, there was so much um brouhaha about when can we bring special needs kids back when can we do this when can we do that and here you guys were doing it all along you you, you just didn't need the brouhaha you just saw the problem and you solved it well we we did the special students that received special education services we brought them brought them in pretty close to the beginning of the year right out of the gate yeah. Additionally, we were able to keep our bus drivers working and we had supply and food drops to different neighborhoods too. So we had materials going back and forth to the schools. And I could cite a lot of examples. I'm going to cite an example I told middle school where a couple of science teachers put kits together so that the kids could do the science experiments at their homes. And then those kits, materials would rotate in and out. Mm -hmm. You have professional learning leaders. They had, a, uh, they supplied materials. 
that went out to the home so that families would have the materials necessary for the land. Yeah, that's wonderful information. I want to um, start talking about, that sounds to me like you came up with some really good solutions on the fly um, that have worked successfully, but I want to talk a little bit more about what this report found for students throughout the state. Um, the report, as I said, was not original research, but they did use other research and um, they used census research data, that kind of thing. And they came up with what they called their four key findings from the report. And one of those key findings was that there were fewer high school seniors in Washington who completed a FAFSA during the 2021 academic year. Uh, that's compared to the previous year. So a FAFSA is that's the form that uh, seniors fill out uh, basically for financial aid for going to school. And in this day and age, unless you happen to be incredibly wealthy, you're probably filling out the FAFSA uh, as part of your preparing for college. Um, so the assumption here is that if fewer high school seniors have completed the FAFSA, then that probably means fewer high school seniors are contemplating college, at least during the 2021 academic year. Well, that's where we're at right now. Are you seeing that in Riverview um, about the seniors? So I have two, two data sources for that. I was working with the, um, the high school around this. And in 1920, they had 58% of the students that applied. And, 2020. I'm sorry, 2020, 1920 school year. Um, they had 58% of the students who had applied. And then the projection right now is 57.76 is what they have. And then you can actually, what's really nice, the FAFSA has a dashboard that you can go to and I, um, and, and you can actually look at schools or schools over time. And when I look at our rates over the, from 2015, um, and you, you can actually look like April of last year to April of this year, and we're on track, but our, our numbers over the last five years have grown from 48.2% in 2015 to that 58% in, in 1920, and we're, we're projected this year to be at 58% is what the projection is telling us on that FAFSA form. Great. So people, that's an up-to-date form yeah. look by region, et cetera. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like, you know, you've had a significant downtick yeah. at all in, in yeah. those numbers, and it's still early, I would imagine, that, you know, that 14% or 15%, uh, 24% that, that you know, difference of 0.24% difference, right. you know, it's still early. I mean, they still got time to fill out those forms. So um, it would seem to me that that's not an alarming difference uh, if there's any difference at all. Um, however, not every senior fills out FAFSA. If you're going to a trade school, if you're going to um, going through, uh, you know, other th other than college or anything that requires big tuition, you probably wouldn't do that. Is there a way to keep track of those uh, seniors, or is that just a, a statistic that nobody seems to have? Uh, ask me in I terms of ask. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Thank yeah. You. So uh, there are that goes along programmatic lines. So. You know, CTE, uh, 
career and technical education programs. Uh -huh. They're required as part of their funding through Perkins Grant and other funding sources to track kids when they leave. They're, they're, they've uh, been through the uh, CTE programs. And then um, also in our special needs program, special education, uh, it's tracked. It's not tracked by most districts for other students. We do hear about their college plans getting accepted, get results on getting accepted to college. And then, of course, we're this we're of a size where we have a good idea of what each student's doing, and then each student has a, a high school and beyond plan that they work on in high school with counselors and others uh, for their plans. But yeah, you're right. So some students, like ASFAB, for instance, if you're going into the military, you take the ASFAB test. So it is dependent on where students are headed. We have a high percentage of our students that go to two and four year colleges. Mm -hmm. And that that's lined up with, um, honestly, it lined up with our demographics. Mm -hmm. This is a fairly high demographic on the east side here. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, one of my frustrations in, well, I mean, it was a lovely interview. I don't mean to imply that the interview with the representative from Washington Student Achievement Council wasn't a good interview. I think it was lovely. Uh, it was a great interview. But um, one of the, the little um, frustrations I had as an interviewer is, okay, you came up with these, these numbers, you came up with these uh, facts or statistics, but now can you hypothesize what that is, why that is? And of course, being a pure researcher, she wouldn't do that. And so I'm going, no, no, no. I want to know why you think this is happening. Uh, but you're not a pure researcher, so I get to ask you. So uh, one of the things that I'm going to ask when we come back from our, our break is, um, what does this mean? If we're not seeing a change in these numbers, what does that mean? If we do, for those districts that have seen a change in those numbers, what does that mean? So I'm going to ask you to speculate, but first okay. I'm going to ask you to stick with me for a couple minutes. We're going to do some messages and we'll come right back to Valley Talk with Heather Starr and Dr. Anthony Smith. You're listening to Valley 104.9, your station for Valley Talk and information. Join us for Northwest Phenomenon Sunday nights at 7 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 as we cover topics from paranormal activity, conspiracy theories, and more. If you have a story you would like to share, email me, Mario at northwestphenomenon.com. We'll see you Sunday nights at 7 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9. Northwest Phenomenon. Dun, 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 dun. Tune in on Saturday evenings when Valley 104.9 is all about the oldies. Things get going at 5.30 p.m. with Forgotten Hits of the 60s, where host Steve Arthur spins up obscure singles and one-hit wonders. Then from 6 to 9, it's the Saturday Night Oldies Show with the Valley's own Terry Spring. Terry busts out his huge collection of 45s from the 50s, 60s, and 70s and spins them every week. It's a double dose of the oldies every Saturday starting at 5.30 p.m. Remember to join us at 1 p.m. on Sunday for Animal Radio. Animal Radio is America's most listened to pet show. The nearly two-hour celebration of our pets is hosted by veterinaire talent Hal Abrams and Judy Francis. So tune in, 1 p.m. Sunday, Animal Radio. 
Immerse yourself in the worlds of community media, sound, podcasting, and audio on Radio Survivor. Airing on Wednesday nights from 6 to 7 p.m. here on Valley 104.9 FM. Welcome back to Valley Talk. I'm Heather Stark, your host with uh, Principal, well, Superintendent, rather, um, Anthony Smith from the Riverview School District. And we also have Assistant Superintendent for Teaching and Learning, Dr. Randy Stalker, with us. We've been talking about a report that recently came out from the Washington Student Achievement Council. And that report came up with four key findings. We talked about the first finding that they saw. What they saw statewide is that fewer high school seniors in this state have completed a FAFSA during the 2020 academic year compared to the previous year. But we've been very fortunate, I think, in Riverview School District. Uh, the numbers that I've just been quoted uh, by uh, Randy Stocker is that actually we're not seeing that in our area, that it seems to be pretty much right in line this year with last year's number of applicants. And that's great. But I want to talk a little bit about why that is. Why do you think other schools in the state have seen that kind of a dip, but Riverview has not? Anthony? Well, I think we have a terrific infrastructure in Riverview for student support. Um, we have highly invested for two decades in uh, counselors, uh, you know, even before COVID and uh, support services for students. So I think our students uh, and again, our community has been very supportive of levies, which pay for a lot of those services. There are other school districts in the state that have a hard time just passing basic levies. And so having that infrastructure um, and student support system is huge. The other thing is we're a collaborative school district. So we involve parents and community and we have more partnerships uh, with organizations like um, Empower Youth Net Network, which used to be called Snoqualmie Valley Community Network. Um, we've added counseling services with agencies. Uh, we're connected with Friends of Youth and then uh, Encompass for Early Childhood. And you know those names I'm rattling off weren't necessarily names that we had uh, intimate partnerships with in the past. So if you have that, you have a lot going on with community support, which I don't think any district that does a good job anymore um, uh, there, there are districts I know that do great work that don't have those partnerships. It, it's no longer, you know, close the door and leave me alone. Um, and so we've had a long history of that. That really played into our rates. And I think it plays in when, when rates fall down. I think it plays into those rates uh, falling down because if you're working with the whole child, when um, the rubber meets the road and you're having uh, hard times, those partnerships are critical in uh, helping support student needs so they can get on to the next thing in their lives. And then the other thing with a collaborative culture, you know, we had a reopening advisory committee of 68 parents, educators, and even some students on that committee. Um, right away when this started, we started meeting, um, which was last March, we started meeting weekly with our associations um, our teachers union, and then every other work week with our uh, classified union. And then so being able to discuss things week by week and make adjustments instead of letting things linger for a month or longer, and then having adversarial types of conversations. And I can tell you, you know exactly with your head shake, you know exactly yes, what I'm yes. speaking of. And so 
those are some of the things. Um, and then, you know, part of my philosophy since I started here, uh, well, I've been in the district for 28 years, but the last 20 years as central office, it's been about um, looking after the four A's, which are academics, number one, activities, athletics, and the arts. And I think you're trying to be inclusive. Uh, of course, academics is the most important thing, and that's why we're here. Um, but students learn so many things, and um, it just it just builds community. Uh, prioritizing the four A's is what I call them. <laughs> <laughs> and being in a school environment, you like to hear about those A's. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. I it you know when you were talking, and I I thought. I had an experience where I had a, a daughter, a, a sophomore um, in, in high school who was going to Forest Ridge, decided she wanted to go to public school. And so a, I took her to the um, local school that she would go to, uh, our neighborhood school, in a neighboring school district, which shall remain nameless. And I went into the school and I said, my daughter would like to enroll. And so they slapped some forms on the counter and I said, well, I wanted to talk to somebody about it. And they looked at me like I had two heads. What do you mean? Fill out the form, she's enrolled. And I went, well, I'm not sure that this is where she should be going. I'd like to talk with somebody about it. And finally, I said, what about who would be her counselor? Is that person available that I could talk to? Again, looking at me like I had, you know, uh, uh, antlers springing out of my forehead or something. And so they did. They took me into this man's office. He introduced himself. And I said, well, hi, how long have you been here? How long, you know? And, and I said, um, what, how many students do you counsel? And he said, um, 600. And I went, 600, my goodness, how do you keep track of them all? And he looked at me in shock and said, I don't have to keep track of them all. I only have to keep track of them if they're in trouble. Needless to say, my daughter did not go to that school. If I don't, I want somebody to know she's there before she gets in trouble. Absolutely. You know? And so when you mentioned, you know, having counselors and support and, yeah, that really rang a bell with me because uh, I, I would not, I didn't send my daughter to that school. I just didn't. If they, if they can't keep track of you unless you're in trouble, um, to me, that sounds like you're incentivizing students to get in trouble. Our um, current counseling ratios at the high school are about 280 to one in normal times, closer to 300 um, to one, because like all districts, we lost some enrollment uh, before the start of the school year. Um, and uh, yeah, it's about personal, social, career, and academic. This is a whole child. It, it's not a behavior child. Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah. it's not an academic child. It's a whole child. And I yeah. think, at being a former counselor, uh, again, those situations where you have the relationship and you build programs to support those relationships. That's where it works. Yeah. So did you, do you think that my experience was unique? I, do you think that that was just an anomaly that this particular counselor saw no need to know students unless they were uh, in trouble? I mean, I would hope that that's not a typical yeah. attitude. I apologize for a political answer, but uh, <laughs> all I know is what I experienced here, you know, what I've experienced here for the uh, last 28 years. I'm really involved in state level stuff as well, but I don't 
I don't speak for other school districts and uh -huh. other students and others. I advocate for them, but I don't speak for them. So. Okay, well, I got to be honest here. This is where it's just no fun as an interviewer that you won't speak for the other ones, okay? <laughs> okay, so let's go on to an, uh, uh, another one of these key findings that the Washington Student Achievement Council discovered uh, that happened across our state. One finding was that Washington families reported that children are spending less time on learning activities than before the pandemic. Now, that's interesting to me because as somebody who's dabbled a little bit in research, I'm thinking, how can that possibly be of any value to have an answer to that question when you're not defining what learning activities are? Because quite honestly, I think, you know, potty training, that's a learning activity. You know, learning how to make applesauce, that's a learning activity. You know, what do they mean by learning activities? Nevertheless, that's how they chose to phrase it. I'm assuming perhaps they meant academics. I don't know. Uh, Randy, elaborate for me what you think they meant and how that translates to what Riverview students have experienced. Well, Heather, I had the same questions you had in terms <laughs> of what does that actually mean? Yeah. Uh, in terms of what does uh, learning activities than before the pandemic? I'm not sure what this data is really telling us. And I don't know the question that led to this. I don't know how they define this. Mm -hmm. So I, I would agree that learning activities, you know, one of the things we tried to do is the work that was being done at the home really tried to expand that so families can be doing, you know, that work alongside the, the student as well as, you know, outside of the home. So for example, like our specialists, we had uh, some choice menus where students can do different activities, like music, art, PE. They had structured learning places but we also had parents say well i'm going to do this with my child does that count can that count as a as a science project can that count and when you think about it we said sure that can count because again this is a time when we're working right alongside families as partners in this child's education in this child's learning and so we really while we covered all content areas at the elementary, we went pretty heavy around the reading, writing, and the math and the science. I'm trying to embed those things, but it's simply not the same as having that student in your classroom where you can make those learning adjustments. Yeah. Give a lot of credit to our secondary teachers. We have standards for learning and really worked with those teachers to narrow those standards down to what are those key core essential standards mm -hmm. so that students would have that knowledge to move forward. So I'm not, I, I would probably, now you've got me in the speculation world. <laughs> That's good, that makes for a good interview, come on. <laughs> okay, um, that, that the learning activities didn't look like what a traditional learning activity might look like in terms of what my students bring home and what, what's happening there. So you're thinking that, and I suspect that you're right, that because of the way the the, quest, the research question was phrased, um, parents were probably thinking, okay, sitting in a desk at, with a book open and somebody lecturing to them is a learning activity, but my sitting there showing them how to make a, a baking soda volcano is not. Is that what you think? That would be my, that would be my guess. Yeah. And again, based on what this researcher is asking or how they're actually pulling yeah. it out. Yeah. You know, kids have kids have just a natural inquisitiveness. I was in the uh, well. I'm gonna go sideways and come back. I was up at Crystal Mountain last week, and there was a, a a Jay coming to get French fries, 
And there was a little girl and she was holding her hand out with a French fry. Well, it didn't come. She was probably about six. So then she said the, the French fry. Then she got a chair and stood on it to be closer to the tree. Then she put it on the edge of the table. So when you think about there, there's a lot of science happening there around creating some kind of a hypothesis. That To me, that she was displaying the kind of scientific thinking and manipulating variables to see if she could get that stellar J to land, which it finally did because they like French fries. But <laughs> so when you think about those learning activities, I think those things. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, relevant. you know, ha having done my, my stint as a homeschooling mother for a, a few years, um, I think a lot of parents who have not done any homeschooling or anything don't see the value and the educational value in those just everyday activities. They think it has to be more formalized somehow um, with, like I said, with a textbook and a lecture or something for it to be a, a valuable educational experience, maybe. I, I'd agree. And so sometimes it's how do we formalize the students' experience in, in, into what is thought of as formalized education. So a student, a, a child that, you know, that cooks at home or that watches a sibling or can figure out time, you know, bus schedules or those kinds of things there is a lot of learning so what's the knowledge that a student has that they bring to the school that we can then bridge to the more formalized mm -hmm. or formalized yeah. learning as part of our work is how, how do we help children make sense of their world so how do you think riverview school district parents would have responded to that question um is your child spending more or less or the same time on learning activities during the pan pandemic Again, I, I think we would have had a range of, of yeah. responses and I say that just not as the safe answer. One <laughs> thing I've learned, Heather, in this year is that this pandemic has hit every family in a different way. And if ever there was a time to kind of back up and support where people are, this has been the year to do that. It, it, my friends, people I work with, families I talk to, everybody, we don't know their story. That whole world of you know, walking in the shoes of another has been more pronounced this year than any time in my lifetime. Yeah. And so I think it's really family dependent. On the outside, it looks like everything's rolling, but then you know, there's a family they're caring for. There's just a host of things. This, we, I, I, I guess I feel really good and I feel really proud. There's work to do, but I think we've really supported our kids and families during an impressive time. Wonderful. Let's talk about one of the third findings of the four um, that the uh, WSAC discovered. Um, one of the things that they said is that a, there's a 40, there was a 42% increase in the proportion of students receiving either a failing, no credit, or incomplete grade in a course. In other words, there was a 42% increase um, over the previous year to this year where students didn't get credit for a course uh, for whatever reason. Has Riverview seen that? Have you kept track of that? Um, yeah, we've, we've kept track a little bit, a little bit differently, uh, Heather, in the sense that what we've been tracking is grades. Um, like how, how many of those grades have there been as opposed to individual students? And so some, one student might have one, one might have mm -hmm. three. And so we just looked at the data a little bit differently uh, when I was talking with the high school around this. And so we have seen, I'll, I'll go back last year because everything, last spring, 
we were getting directions about every three weeks as to what the school year needed to be to finish the school year. Yeah. And we came, we came up with a with an incomplete strategy and then worked to help kids gain those credits. It just didn't seem fair that students would automatically fail, if you will, if when these outside forces have happened. And so we provided a window, provided some alternative learning experiences, some project-based learning pieces at the high school for students to gain, gain those credits. And so many of those have been completed. Right now, we saw at the end of the first semester, we've seen an increase in non-completed. And then we've, out of those non-completed, we've seen, uh, what is it, about 30% of those kids move those kids into a credit-bearing grade. So they're continuing to work on that with those students. But what we're really trying to get to a place is, is a non-credit with multiple pathways to help the student gain those credits. Okay, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I want to be clear. So did Riverview see an increase in the number of students that did not receive a credit for a class, but you're working on it? To we did see an increase. Again, yes, we okay. did see an increase in non-credit. Okay. Uh, in the same breath, I think we, we found strategies to well to allow those kids to get to a credit. Mm -hmm. We built a system that allows kids to gain credits rather than to say, sorry, you didn't make it. And would that involve not just uh, additional opportunities for them to do more activities or to repeat the, the textbook uh, assignments? Would it also include alternatives? Um, it would also I think include. of the old, the old model of, uh, you know, Boy Scout badges or Girl Scout badges, you know, you, 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 this is what you're supposed to do, A, B, and C, but if you can't do C, then we can do X and Y and give, still give you credit. Is that the kind of thing? All of the above, yes. <laughs> All of the, and the reason I say that is because if you want to retrieve credit outside the school day, because let's say you're in band and it's really important to you, and and we don't want to say to kids, well, you're going to have. Uh, I mean, for for me, I was a music major in my undergrad, so for someone telling that, saying that to me in high school, it would have been almost like a death sentence for my career. So uh, we have uh, uh, credit retrieval during the school year during the day and outside the school day. And we have credit retrieval during the summer. And then our teachers work so hard, you know, with incomplete grades to help students to uh, uh, get to standard. Um, so we took care of most of those uh, challenges up front. I wanna give you a statistic that just got posted recently uh, because it takes the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction a while to uh, post graduation rates. And so this is right off of the OSPI uh, report card for school districts. Um, actually our graduation rate last percentage last year, and this will probably lead to a follow-up question, uh, was 94.7%. I mean, 95 is very high. Uh, so we're basically round up, it's 95%. Now, the way this stat is expressed by OSPI now, um, we had another 4% that continued. So they didn't just leave, they continued to get their credits. Um, and we only had 1.3%. So this would be akin to 2.5 students, which we're not happy with that either, but only 2.5 2, uh, 2 students out of 226 in our senior class uh, dropped out. 
So I'm really excited about that. I'm, I'm anxious for the follow-up statistic um, for continuing. And uh, if you know all 4% um, ended up finishing what they had to finish, that would push our graduation rate for last year up to 98.7%, which is you know, like in the elite. Now I have to say that there's flaws in all statistics. The flaw in this one is, you know, we have, um, we, we have programs like our, uh, what's the special needs program transition? We have transition program for special needs kids to help them with careers where it's just assumed they're gonna be with us until they're 21. And did you know the state counts those kids, uh, the, the children that are in those programs as dropouts if they don't graduate on time, even though their plan is to continue for a couple of years to get them connected vocationally or through the world of work, or uh, even in some cases, we've had kids go on to college from those programs because they've just improved their skills so much. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet they're counted as a dropout, huh? Yeah. yeah, and then, you know, one of the questions might be, and I, have a, I do have an answer to this, so a follow-up question might be, well, you said it's the highest rate in, in, in several years. Uh, uh, what were you doing differently to create that higher rate? And I would say there are a couple things. One is with, with smaller graduating classes, like Lake Washington has 10 times more graduates, right? Because they're 10 times bigger district. So there's a bigger bow wave in, in terms of, you know, statistics um, year to year because of small cohort size. So that's one thing. But the other thing goes back to what Dr. Stalker said about family engagement. And, um, and so there were some lessons learned about getting family engagement going early on and um, continuing with that engagement, partnering more. And so I do think that made a difference with some of the kids. And then uh, a commonly asked question is, yeah, but there was a lot of grade inflation that went on second semester because districts are counting for uh, you know, giving kids every opportunity. And to that, I would say, hey, most of those seniors were on track to graduate. They weren't credit deficient before COVID happened. So I, I dismissed that a little bit. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I think you answered that quite nicely. Thank you. I'm 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 pleased with that answer. Um, let's go. Let's talk briefly about the. Well, you know what? I need to take a break. I need to stop talking, which is always a problem for me. When you talk for a, <laughs> when you talk for a living, it's always a problem to stop. You're in the right profession. Yeah. <laughs> let's take a real quick break, and then when we come back, I'm gonna we're gonna wrap up with the last finding that I have because I think that one might be the most pertinent to our conversation today. So you're listening to Valley Talk. I'm Heather Stark. With me is Dr. Uh, Randy Stalker and uh, Dr. Anthony Smith from Riverview School District, and they're going to tell us more about the uh, the effect of the year of COVID. We'll be right back. You're listening to Valley 104.9, your station for Northwest Eclectic Music. Remember to join us at 1 p.m. on Sunday for Animal Radio. Animal Radio is America's most listened to pet show. The nearly two-hour celebration of our pets is hosted by veterinaire talent Al Abrams and Judy Francis. So tune in 1 p.m. Sunday, Animal Radio. reasons why you want to listen to the children's hour. One is because it has nice music 
and two is because there are kids in it, and three is because there's lots of good, nice stories that you might want to hear. Educational entertainment for the whole family. I love the Children's Hour. Kids Public Radio. Sundays at 10 a.m. on Valley 104.9 FM. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, and host of Food Sleuth Radio, the show that helps us think beyond our plates, connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. If you care about the food you eat, then join me on Sundays at 3 p.m. on Valley 104.9 FM for Food Sleuth Radio. What inspires an author to write a book? How do novels and plays get written? Why are some books impossible to put down? Hi, I'm Richard Walensky, and I'll be speaking with authors getting to the heart of their creativity and their research on Bookwaves Sunday afternoon at 3.30 on Valley 104.9 FM. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest eclectic music. Welcome back to Valley Talk. We're talking Riverview School District. I'm Heather Stark, your host. And a few weeks ago, I did an interview with a representative from the Washington Student Achievement Council, which issued a report with four key findings about some of the fallout from the pandemic year for Washington State students. Now we're talking and clarifying some of those, comparing some of those statements with what's happening actually in our Riverview School District. So the fourth and final key finding of this study ran is that almost half of Washington students still have no regular in-person instruction. And in-person instruction is less common for high school students than elementary school students. How do you see that in Riverview School District? We've, uh, as we shared a little bit earlier, I'll, I'll, I'll start at the back. <laughs> we, we brought in students with special needs pretty much right at the beginning of the school year. Then we started bringing in students that didn't have access or had some additional learning needs. We brought back our kindergarten and first graders in early February and went on a approximately two week cycle. Uh, we brought back the second and third graders, then the fourth and fifth graders. We brought back the sixth and eighth graders. And then we brought back the ninth and 12th graders just prior to spring break here in early April. So we have, we have, uh, Approximately 70% of our students are receiving instruction in person. It's a modified day, a shortened day. Um, then they receive the other part of their, their instruction, uh, like the remote learning. They're doing that work at home through teacher assignments. So we have, we have again, approximately 70% of our kids are, are on-site receiving instruction. And so uh, when you say shortened day and then expected to do online, what, about how many hours? Um, uh, two and a half hours is what's uh, four days a week. Okay. So they'll go in the morning or the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And, and then how, hours. what's the expectation of the amount of time that they will spend uh, studying at home or doing online studying? It's the same as a regular school day. So it's right about three hours. So when we had to build a plan, every school district had to build an instructional plan and submit it to the Office of Superintendent in Pub of Public Instruction down at OSPI. So we had to account for our time and then build, build learning uh, models, learning plans for students. And this is where we benefited from our learning last spring when uh, 
some of the learning was more optional. We spent a fair amount of time this summer to build what we felt was the, the best option for this current school year. And so what some teachers do is they'll use that time with the student in the morning and then set up the, the learning for the afternoon and then the students bring it back in the next morning, review, et cetera. And then you just flip flop it for the, uh, for the afternoon kids in the morning, bring it back in the morning. So as far as this key finding from the this state agency, you would disagree um, that that Riverview students sounds like a lot more than half of them do have regular in-person instruction at this time. Is that it, they they do as part of they do at this time. And, and if you talk about concurrent learning at the secondary. So at the secondary, we're also doing calling it concurrent learning. And what's happening there is that students are the remote students. Uh, we've set up again through Chris Collins, his team with information technology. We've set up the classroom so the teacher could be teaching the students in the classroom while at the same time the students are participating from home uh, via Zoom. So uh, it, it allows them to receive the same instruction. I talked to a couple of students, I walked past a red pepper pizza the other day, and there were some students, and one said, Well, I'm at home. The other one said, well, I'm in school. We were working on a project or an assignment together within that class. So in the classroom, it's a high school classroom. Yeah. One student's working from home, zooming in. The other one's there. They're in a small group or, you know, partner partnership activity. So. Okay. Well, um, you know, I kind of questioned that one myself. I, I'm assuming that there's a time lag. I mean, if they gathered this data four or five months ago. I suspect that the responses would be different if they were gathering it today for almost everywhere, um, at least in Washington. I, I would uh, agree. I think the other thing that happened is we were following guidelines. I mean, we've been following both federal and state, King County Public Health, you know, following these guidelines. And what were they saying were the safest places for these kids? Yeah. How do we set up classrooms to allow this to happen? How do we set up sanitizing stations? How do we set up yeah. How do we, you know, ensure that both, you know, staff and students are safe? As, you know, every month we learn a little bit more about this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, family by family, uh, families had to make the decision whether to come back or stay with in person. And there's a variety of reasons to, to, uh, excuse me, to stay with remote. Uh, there's a variety of reasons to stay in remote, and in, in some cases, they there are kids or family members with sensitive health conditions where they wanted to come back, but they didn't feel like they could because of one person or another's health condition, which of course we're going to respect that and be inclusive. Um, I thought it was really big. It's been a lot of adjustments in tech training for teachers. I thought it was really big that, you know, we're able to get agreement uh, because it was just yet another uh, situation, another training to learn how to do um, effective teaching concurrently. Uh, and uh, our teachers, I've been in a lot of classrooms, so as Dr. Stockard, our teachers are doing a great job with it. It, it, it takes, you know, talking to other superintendents, it, it, it takes about two to three weeks to adjust to that. You would think that. Um, and so in some cases in other school districts, they didn't allow for that option. So basically kids were starting from scratch at home with an online learning program and not retaining the same teacher. Uh, and might even have a teacher for let's, let's just say physics, right? AP calculus may not even have a teacher that's qualified to teach those things. So, you know, as far as getting specific help, 
that would be very difficult. So we advocated strongly to have that model in place and uh, had high agreement, you know, amongst our teachers at the secondary level that that would be best for all kids. Yeah. You know, one of the things um, that uh, struck me about this survey is, again, as a parent, I would think that whenever we're looking at the assessment for student achievement, we would have to include the psychological fallout of all of this. And yet none of the questions were about any of the psychological stuff. I'd like to ask you that aside from the Washington Student Achievement Council uh, uh, report, what are you seeing? How, how, do you, how have students fared emotionally, psychologically uh, over the last year? And um, what have you seen? I think this has been, uh, thank you for that. And thank you for your insights. And I agree with, I agree with them very much. Again, back to the whole child. I think this has been very challenging social emotionally. You know, you're, you're going from a, in some kids cases from a situation where they start school early in the morning and they're there for activities until early in the night in the evening. And they're very connected socially to those systems and, you know, like adults, but these kids are developing in all ways. Uh, I think it was extraordinarily hard on them um, from a social emotional learning uh, context. Uh, in, in some cases, uh, you, you know, a lot of trauma. And I think it was hard on families too, because you've been there, I've been there. Uh, Dr. Stocker's been there. You know, uh, we could advise and bring things up and ask kids how their days went. But then, and you have firsthand experience being a homeschool teacher. Um, uh, our kids, depending on the child, uh, doesn't see us as their teacher. They see us as mom and dad. And so, you know, in our community, I'd really like to commend the parents and our students because uh, uh, th they were thrust into this. So, this, so we're, we're working on social emotional issues constantly. And then two years ago, um, after the um, incidences with some of the suicides, even though we have robust systems in place, I talked about this just a, I, I uh, glossed, glossed on it earlier in the conversation. You know, we contracted with large counseling and unified counseling. And so kids that need that really intensive ongoing support that, that's weekly in nature uh, can, can uh, access that resource for no cost. So we, we have a lot of things in place, but make no mistake about it. Uh, as we're transitioning into more and more kids at school in person, and we're hopeful that we will be all back in person in the fall, we're hopeful for that. Um, we, we will have to continue to address these, these issues with our kids um, and really be looking at, you know, what's it gonna take to, uh, to rebuild the school culture, the classroom culture, um, and uh, work with kids, you know, on a one-to-one -one basis on what their needs are and partner with their families around those needs. Well, and as a mom, um, and, and I was a public school teacher for, uh, in junior highs and high schools for four years, um, I, it's always such a delicate walk between you want kids to recognize if they're having some sort of emotional issues. You want them to know that there's help available. But I've known parents that just hammer it in. And I'm thinking, I don't think the kids as upset as you think you are, as you think they are, but you keep talking like that and they're going to be, you know, if, if, they're, if your expectation is that there should be, you know, high drama here, they're more than happy to go into high drama. 
I don't know how a teacher uh, in a school district is able to walk that delicate balance between making sure that there is help available without fanning the flames. Um, because let's face it, that those ages like their drama. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and it's by it's by um, developing relationships over time. I'll let Dr. Stocker speak to that as well. Well, just thanks, thanks for bringing this forward. And one of the things that I, you know, I just feel real fortunate about our teaching staff. Actually, about all our staff, um, food service workers, transportation. Well, this is something that we talked about intentionally, about how do you connect with kids? You know, academics will come, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to support that. But when we started to talk about what does the beginning of the year look like in a remote learning environment and how it's going to be more important to spend some time to build culture, to get to know kids. And again, I'd just like to give a big credit to our teaching staff, our support staff, when we started moving kids on the buses, you know, the, the bus drivers, the reach outs that they did, food service workers, um, this this was an, there was some intentionality around it. And, and I'm going to just go back to the teaching staff, the teaching staff's desire to build these relationships and their abilities. We did we did a little bit of work, like what does it look like in professional learning? What does it look like to build relationships uh, through, you know, technology means through a zoom world and so uh, it, at the core you know students are looking at those teachers as models and you know we're, we're fortunate we have some strong models here wonderful i'm looking at the clock and i'm going no no we can't be done yet um, <laughs> i i'm hoping that um you both can come back um, maybe in a couple months. And one of the questions that I, we have this year right now is that we're wrapping things up. The academic year is wrapping up and, and there, that involves a certain amount of change and examination, especially in light of things are opening up at the same time that they're wrapping up, um, if, you, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, and next fall though is gonna be key. And I would love to have a discussion with you aside from any reports or anything, of just what is that going to look like? What is going to be different? What's going to be the same? Um, have, have expectations changed? You know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and so I'm hoping that you can come back and we can have another discussion about that as we get closer uh, to the end of summer. Uh, we, would, we would love to have that conversation and even, even perhaps have it as we're transitioning into summer and then having it again as we're transitioning if you like, if, as we're transitioning into the school year. And, uh, you know, thank you for this opportunity. Um, this is great communication. It's the way I look at it. <laughs> oh, good. And uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, community radio, like community schooling, it's about everybody, not just a, a, a few people. And so it's crucial that we communicate openly and with each other. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for uh, uh, addressing some of the issues in that report. And uh, thank you for sharing with what's what's going on during this uh um, I, I don't want to use the same terminology. One of my pet peeves right now is that everybody's using the same uh, terminology for everything. You know, you have to reimagine policing. You have to have shot an arm. You have to, you know. <laughs> so I don't want to keep using, you know, other people's words. But I think it is crucial um, that we uh, stay open 
and, and uh, talk about these things. So thank you very much, Dr. Anthony Smith, Superintendent of Riverview School District, Dr. Randy Stocker, Assistant Superintendent for Teaching and Learning. Thank you for sharing with us about this pandemic year and its effect on Riverview School District. And thank you for listening to Valley Talk on Valley 104.9 FM. Thank you.